Welcome back to the Sports Docs Podcast with Dr. Katherine Logan and Dr. Ashley Bassett, where we chat about the most recent developments in sports medicine with experts in the field. In episode eight, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Michael Sakati and dive deeper into UCL surgery, including surgical techniques and outcomes for both primary and revision UCL reconstruction. We'll start with a systematic review and meta-analysis titled Modified Job versus Docking Technique for Elbow Ulnar Collateral Ligament Reconstruction. Chang and his colleagues found no significant difference in clinical outcomes and return to sport between the docking or figure of eight technique once controlled for surgical approach. It appears that the inferior outcomes attributed to the original figure of eight technique may be more related to detachment of the flexor pronator mass during the approach and submuscular ulnar nerve transposition. Then, from the November 2020 issue of AJSM, we review the publication Ulnar Collateral Ligament Tear Location May Affect Return to Sports Rate But Not Performance Upon Return to Sports After Ulnar Collateral Ligament Reconstruction Surgery in Professional Baseball Players. Dave Alchek and team at HSS reported that professional baseball players who sustained a distal UCL tear were more likely to return to sports after UCL reconstruction compared to players who had a proximal UCL tear. Lastly, Andrews and his team published a study on outcomes after ulnar collateral ligament revision reconstruction in baseball players. The authors found that outcomes after revision UCL reconstruction are not as favorable as those after primary reconstruction, with only half of all baseball players returning to their previous level of play after revision reconstruction. So you and Catherine both just chatted about getting, you know, buy-in, not just from, I think, patients, but from their parents oftentimes. And you had mentioned the rising increase in surgical treatment, you know, UCL reconstruction yeah. for these UCL injuries. And I feel like lately I've been hearing a lot of doing a UCL reconstruction makes you a better pitcher. It makes you stronger. It makes you throw better. And I feel like the studies don't really bore that out. I feel like they show actually, you know, the one we referenced, the McKnight paper showed a decrease in accuracy of the fastball pitch. Um, the velocity was the same, but the decreased accuracy, you know, persisted for up to three years postoperatively. So given that this data is all over the place and that patients and their parents come in with this, I don't want to do PT. I don't want to try non-op. I want a repair and a brace, or I want a reconstruction. What is the conversation that you're having with these um, yeah. parents and family, you know, look like, uh, preoperatively in terms of guiding them one way or another. So Ashley, so many important things that you said there, really, um, misconceptions, right. Um, you know, urban myths, uh, what, there's a wonderful series of, of studies that were done initiated by Chris Ahmad, looking at perceptions, um, with UCL injury. So what Chris and his, his study group did, uh, they sent out a questionnaire. They developed a really simple questionnaire, just asking basic questions about UCL diagnosis, you know, uh, types of treatment, indications for treatment, recovery times, success rates. And they sent it to uh, athletes and they sent it to parents and they sent it to coaches. And it was crazy the kind of responses, you know, that, you know, the main indication was performance enhancement, not injury, right? Or that, to your point, as you said, that, that uh, reconstruction would significantly increase velocity and control, right? And they should be done prophylactically. It's things like that, like crazy. And then, and then the next series of that study was done with uh, what are called the beat writers in baseball. So, so the media, like who transmits information to the world for us, right? It's the media. 
now they have a really they actually have a really hard job because we take years and years of studying all this and we have these great conversations like this and we mm-hmm. talk about it and we get we get more refined in our in our thought but they have to sift through that and then they have to translate all that to a 30 second soundbite or a paragraph in you know in some article and so it is hard but he sent the same questionnaire to those people crazy mis- misperceptions same kind of thing that you know it's for it's for performance enhancement and they're going to be throwing the ball faster and then finally he sent it to the most elite level athletes professional athletes same thing so there are a whole variety of misperceptions out there urban myths and and it's our job to to do exactly what you're alluding to is to like to really be realistic to be realistic in terms of the outcomes of this i believe this is a really great procedure and if you look at outcomes general outcomes um, these athletes, they, they, in high percentages get back. We could debate, is that 65, 75, 85%, 95%? There are studies that are in that range, but a large percentage of them get back. Um, but how we assess them is really important too. Um, and in the past, our assessment has been very rudimentary. In American shoulder and elbow score is a great score if, you know, like, if you want to know if you're brushing your teeth or combing your hair, <laughs> but like for an elite level baseball player, that's just like, they're going to all like knock it out of the park on that, on an ASES score. Yeah. So you need to be, you need to be very specific in how you evaluate them. You have to do activity specific assessment. So like a KJOC score, for example, is much more appropriate for a throwing athlete. Um, and then what you're alluding to, which is really important is the next level is using activity metrics. So in baseball, like assessing them, you know, you know, how did they perform beforehand? You know, what were their velocities? What was their control like their whip, you know, ERA wins, losses, strikeouts. I mean, they're very advanced sabermetrics that are used now, not just for pitchers, but also for, you know, position players too. And in terms of offensively batting. So you, you take the, the sport, you define advanced metrics how did they perform beforehand? And then how do they perform afterwards? And the more granular we get, we're realizing we're not as good as we thought we were, right? Mm-hmm. And so we still have that, that really speaks to the point that we have to keep doing what we're doing here. We have to talk about it. We have to do more research. So we refine not just the, the, the diagnosis, not just the non-operative treatment, but the operative treatment and, and, and the rehab. So when I have a player that comes in, <coughs> excuse me, I, uh, I'm I'm very honest with them and say, these are the results that we have. We're learning more and more about it. As we learn more, we realize there are certain aspects of what you might do as a baseball player that we might not be as good at. And I can't look you in the eye and say that you're going to have the same velocity or the same control you had pre-injury. I can tell you this is the range that you would likely have. And I'm very optimistic about it. And the reality now is that you failed non-operative treatment. So if you want to play, this is really the option you should take. But I can't look you in the eye and say that you're going to absolutely be 100%. And I certainly can't tell you you're going to throw the ball faster than you did before. Yeah. That's a lot of important points, I think, to make mm-hmm. to them. So um, you mentioned that, you know, failure of non-operative treatment. So are there any indications that you have to proceeding directly to surgical treatment? Um, I know based on the, all the things we talked about before, you know, age and activity level, or they're a professional, you know, major league pitcher, or, you know, complete tear, acute injury, a variety of things. Is there anything that goes, this person needs to go to yeah. the OR? Yeah. And then in that case, does timing of surgery matter? 
So, so I do think that, you know, every, every, every athlete is, 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 you know, should be individualized. But to your point, if you have an elite level overhead throwing athlete, so a baseball player, a javelin thrower, and they have a high grade or complete tear and they want to compete at the highest level, they're going to need to have it fixed. So, so I, I, uh, you know, you, you, if they don't want to have it fixed, then of course you treat them non-operatively and you do everything you can but they're going to need to have fixed. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, the answer to your, to your, to your first question, first part of your question, everybody else, you can, you can navigate them through to depend upon the nuances of their specific um, situation. Yeah. What's Cut. the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Oh no, that's a, uh, and then, oh, um, cause actually Catherine and I were talking about a case. She has a patient, I hope you don't mind me sharing Catherine with a, a you know, a, a traumatic UCL injury with a variety of other injuries, I believe on that MRI. And we were talking about timing of surgery, like how important does it matter getting this person in you know, right away versus does timing not matter if you're considering a reconstruction versus a repair. So if you know, someone's going that javelin player, you were talking about, you know, um, kind of politics aside, are you taking them more timely for surgery because of outcome uh, differences or does timing not matter? So great. That's a great question too. And I think that, that you, you can look at a couple ways that are, that are all very important. Number one, um, an elbow dislocation, you get an MRI on an elbow dislocation. I mean, that's like a grenade went <laughs> off in the elbow, right? And you went, you, you, you spend a lot of time talking those people off the ledge, right? <laughs> because they're like, oh my gosh, everything's torn and exploded and I have to have it operated on. And, you know, we know that like in that particular type of injury, the biggest issue is stiffness, right? Mm-hmm. They're probably, they're probably need, I mean, so such a small percentage are going to need to have a UCL reconstruction yeah. in an elbow dislocation. So we're talking about a different animal here, right? And um, and I think that that you know that so so in the, in the UCL, the even the acute on chronic or the acute UCL injury, um, I think that it's different now than it was when Frank Job first described this technique. What I mean by that is that UCLs have been tears and instability have been as long as baseballs occurred, but up until that time, until the like mid late 70, 1970s, they just navigated through with this. And because they were throwing and throwing and throwing, they developed progressive flexor pronator damage and tearing. They developed significant ulnar neuritis. So, so those athletes came with a lot of additional pathology that impacted their outcome. You know, you, you tear your flexor pronator too, you avulse it, and then, you know, you fix it. There's, there's, there's you know, m- uh, morbidity associated with that and prolonged recovery. If you have to transpose an ulnar nerve, we know there are a variety of systematic reviews that show that those athletes may not do as well. If you, if you, can just, if you don't have to do anything in the ulnar nerve, that's great. So, so we don't let those athletes get to that point now, though which is my point. We understand and we have much more confidence in the procedure. We're so much more granular with everything we're talking about tonight in terms of diagnosis, non-operative and operative, that we don't let them get to that point. Um, And so because we don't let them get to this terrible ulnar neuritis, or we don't let them get to the point where they tear their flexor pronator, short of that, the things that might occur, that probably doesn't like doesn't matter in terms of the outcome of your surgery, whether they have, you know, uh, mid substance tear or mid substance and a proximal injury or maybe a little avulsion. Probably doesn't impact it. So, being that I know we only have you for so long tonight because you're a busy man with more meetings, um, I want to uh, make sure um, we touch base on um, 
the basically the utility of doing a repair with augmentation yeah. um, versus a reconstruction. You know, how does that sort of fit into your algorithm? Yeah, so that's great. I mean, that's a great question. And I and so the early, you know, Frank Job when he first looked at this, uh, he compared. In fact, the study that John Conway published, which was the landmark study for so long with Frank Job, um, had a repair group. And the repair group outcome was dismal. But like, you know, th think about it. <clears throat> for what I just said, Frank Job was taking care of these athletes that had this, this pathology brewing for so long. They had the flexor pronator damage. They had terrible UCLs. So you try to stitch that or repair it, it's not going to work. So, so because repair outcomes were so poor in that landmark study, essentially repair was cast aside. And we have all this data on reconstruction with, with, with really appropriate good results. Uh, and then Buddy Savoie sort of rekindled that interest in repair and had really good results in a young patient population with repair. But that study sort of, it sort of went under the radar. It was a great study. It wasn't a big study, but it was a great study, but it went under the radar until, you know, Jeff Dugas uh, really kind of resurrected it, looking at augmenting it with an, an you know, an internal brace. And, uh, and I, much to Jeff's credit, He's been very specific about indications for this, meaning that you have that physiologically youthful UCL that unfortunately has one zone of injury, whether it's mid-substance or whether it's an avulsion from one end to the other, but it's a pretty healthy ligament like other than that. Um, and then you, you do you do a repair with, with uh, an internal brace. And he's stayed to that, true to that indication, even though the world is sort of pushing him, you know, agents love it. I mean, general managers like salivate over the thought of 12 months or right. Months, right. Yeah. So, so he's been true to it. And so, so I think that it's not a matter of, it's truly not a debate as to which one's better reconstruction versus repair. They're both great. The really, the question of debate is how do they fit with each other, right? They, they need to be part of our armamentarium, both of them. So right now, if you have that physiologically youthful ligament that is, has, has damage to it, and if they fail non-operative treatment, you think they need to be op treated operatively, uh, you know, a repair with an internal brace is an outstanding procedure. If you have a ligament that is physiologically older or damaged, is acute on chronic damage, and we don't know like what the tide mark is, like one or the other. I can't answer that. But there's a gestalt that you get if there's a lot of damage to it. Then a reconstruction is the most appropriate treatment right now. So, so they really both fit in. And, and I think that's important to, to understand. So talking a little bit more about reconstruction, I do want to ask, because I know we, we referenced the systematic review that you were a part of um, by, I believe, Cheng and his group at INOVA, um, looking at outcomes of the two different, the main two different techniques, yeah. the Job uh, figure of eight and the docking technique. Right. Um, but I also want to revisit whether or not you throw an internal brace into reconstruction, which I believe the answer is no, if I'm remembering correctly, but I do want to touch upon that. So yeah. given that that systematic review showed fairly equivalent outcomes once they took aside flexor pronator detachment and submuscular ulnar nerve transposition. Um, what is your preferred technique um, for UCL reconstruction? Great question. So, so I was reared on, you know, the Job. I mean, having been, I, I, I did my fellowship at Curl and Job and I just, Frank Job was just a wonderful human being and a great mentor. And so I love that procedure and, and he taught me how to do it. So again, I was reared on that procedure. 
Um, and the systematic reviews that were out there, and Chris Ahmad, we alluded to that one earlier, uh, uh, showed in a non-statistically significant way, there was a trend towards perhaps higher return to sport um, uh, and fewer complications with docking versus Joe, but it was not statistically significant, um, and, and but it was a trend. Um, but if you if you look at the studies that have compared those uh, techniques and they're mostly systematic systematic reviews or meta analyses that have compared them, again the docking sort of inches ahead. But what was in what was in the Job uh, you know group for so long were the original technique where you lifted off the flexor pronator mass and you transpose the ulnar nerve, right? And so what we did in that study was we removed that group. And if you look at what people do now where they split the flexor pronator mass and they only transpose the ulnar nerve if there's ongoing symptoms, either, you know, prolonged neuritic symptoms or symptomatic subluxation. Uh, so if you only do it in that scenario, they're the same. So they're the same. So, so, so then the answer to that question is, you do what you feel like really what you feel most comfortable with. And then you know that you're doing a great job. Now I will say to you that, um, I, I, I love both procedures and I, I'm comfortable doing them both. And, uh, we're in the midst of completing the, uh, first, uh, prospective randomized, uh, clinical trial, single surgeon clinical trial on Joe versus docking. So we have 80 patients, uh, with an elaborate uh, history, physical examination, MR arthrogram, stress ultrasound, uh, and a randomized to either uh, modified docking or modified job. Same graph for all, gracilis, because not everybody has a palmaris, so we remove that as a factor. And then the same post-operative evaluation uh, with um, uh, sports-specific metrics, with patient-reported outcomes, with MR arthrogram, and stress ultrasound, uh, at a year, two years, and five years. So we're in the midst of collecting that data. And w what we're finding is that there's no statistically significant difference whether between the two techniques. The, the only difference in terms of outcome and return to play, all that, the only difference is the tourniquet time is shorter with a docking technique. Yeah. So it's, it is technically, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a, a more simplified technique, the docking, because they're smaller tunnels. So, so, I think they're both great, and I think that the data will show that as long as you, whichever one you like to do, as long as you do it well, you're doing a great job. I have to just sort of say as a side that that's an incredible feat to pull off a study like that. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Well, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I had, my son was a resident, and he just, he tortured me, and he said, Dad, you should do this study. So <laughs> he's the one that's bearing, he's bearing the brunt of all the data collection and all that. <laughs> so that should be our plan just to put our children to work. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. But it's, so I think it, but it's a really important question. Like, again, if you do it, if you do it well, then, you know, whatever you do well, and you're, you're really doing your, your patient um, a service. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I do have one last question before we dive into our little fast five that we'll chat about. So um, for, you mentioned graph choice, and I know we had discussed this um, in fellowship, but, you know, the Gracilis autograph, the Palmaris autograph, or allograph, um, why, why autograph versus allograph? I know gracilis versus palmaris, you said not everyone has a palmaris, mm -hmm. but why autograph versus allograph? Great question. So um, there's an enormous amount of data on autographs, and that was what Frank Job chose, yeah. right? 
And then that's what Jimmy <laughs> Andrews did, right? So you had these two people and Lou Yoke and those people doing like massive amounts of them that did autograph. And again, Buddy Savoie, very brave, he published, <laughs> he published an article looking at allograft. Really great results with allograft. But that's essentially one of the only studies that have looked at allografts. And so there's this massive amount of autographed information. And when you're taking care of athletes, like professional athletes, and, you know, there's all this voodoo and all this that goes on with it. And if you chose an allograft and it just didn't work out, it had to be the allograft. And why did you choose the allograft when everybody uses an autograft? Yeah. So maybe that's it. Maybe I'm, actually, maybe I'm just not brave enough, but <laughs> as brave, I'm not as brave as Buddy. But, but I, I think that that's why I use autograft. And, and there, there are a couple of important things to consider with the graph, too, that they're, they're important to consider. So we talked about how 17% of people don't have a Palmaris. And then of the you know, 83% that have it, many of them, it's diminutive. So it needs, the, the graph needs to be four to five millimeters in width. If you're going to do a docking, you need to have eight to nine centimeters. If you're going to do a job, you have to have 15 to 16 centimeters. So if you have diminutive, diminutive Palmaris, you just... There's not enough there. The gracilis is always there. The gracilis is always long enough. Mm -hmm. The issue with the gracilis is you often have to trim it down and it just doesn't pass through the tunnels so smoothly and you can overstuff the tunnels. And there are a couple of reports of heterotopic ossification with uh, gracilis. So, so I, my tendency, because I'm in the midst of this study is like, I'm doing a lot of gracilis, but if, if, if the palmaris is there and it's the right size, it's just, man, it's just, <laughs> so smooth like it's just elegant it just slides through the tunnels easily so i would use either but you have to be you have to be agile got it that yeah. makes sense can i sneak in Catherine, one really do you have any i want to sneak in yes one question. please go ahead um <laughs> only because i i could uh, talk about this like all night know, we have I so many this. questions <laughs> So uh, my question is actually about um, return to sport and like mental. Um, so like mental skills and like are, you know, especially with these professional players, how much is it a part of it? Like returning their confidence? How do you do that? I had um, the pleasure once I don't, I'm going to mess up the last name, but this woman, Hannah Husman, I think mm -hmm. um, she's oh, like a mental Philly. skills coach. Yes. From yeah. Philly. Yeah. Had, got to speak to her once um how much does that play in with this particular problem it's it, you know it's 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 hugely important i mean their their uh mental perspective on this right it goes back to what we said right in the beginning that you have an athlete that does something if, if we're talking about professional athlete or an elite collegiate athlete they do something that like, very few people on the planet can do right throwing a ball 100 miles an hour yeah. Uh, or hitting a ball <laughs> that's thrown at 100 miles an hour. So, so they do that, and then you take that away from them, or an injury takes that away from them. That is incredibly overwhelming. So we we tend to focus on the the, the physiologic aspect of it, right? It's it's torn, and we're debating like, do we fix it or not? It's torn, but we can't we can't ignore the 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 psychosocial and the emotional and the mental aspects of it. They are real, and and so. To your point, I think we're learning more and more about this at our, our in fact, at the um, our summer meeting uh, at the AOSSM meeting in Nashville. Uh, we're going to have a whole session uh, that's focused on, you know, the mental challenges of uh, the intangible aspects of playing sports, not just at an elite level, and what, what how important it is for us as their caretakers to be aware of that and how we can develop um, 
uh, a phraseology that we've we've kind of embraced, which is a mental health toolkit for for our athletes. Even though it's not, you know, as orthopedists, it's not our precise area of expertise. We're their team physicians, right? We're taking care of them, so we have to be aware of the of that and 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 get them to people that can uh, guide them. Awesome! Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, this is great. So okay. we wrap up every episode with something called the Fast Five, where we just ask you Uh-oh. five questions that don't have anything to do with the current topic. Don't worry, no one gets them in advance; they're not hard. <laughs> okay, um, Catherine, do you want to kick it off? Um, okay, uh, so when you're in the operating room, um, what is your favorite band or artist to listen to? Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> I mean, I I love you know I I love uh, I love music. Uh, I don't play an instrument. Uh, but I love all genres of music. Uh, but I would say if I had to pick one, I love Van Morrison. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. We listen to that a lot at the house. Yeah. I love that. But I, I listen to everything. I love every genre of music. I think I know the answer to this last one, but foot pedal versus handheld shaver or wand in the operating room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to be able to use all your extremities. So of course you got to need a foot pedal. Right? No, yeah. I mean, I have logic. I mean, Ashley's heard me say this, but I think if you have, you know, the, the, uh, the handheld, like by the time you get to the button, you've, you've beautifully autographed, you know, whatever you're like near. So, but your foot, you can chase your foot off the foot pedal so quickly. So I'm totally a foot pedal person. I mean, it's tedious, of course, on the floor and all, but I have foot pedal. Agree. All right. Favorite surgery. Favorite what? Surgery. Oh my God. I love a UCL reconstruction. <laughs> I figured. I figured. Yeah, we knew that was coming. Okay. Um, <laughs> who's your pick for the NBA championship? Oh, my hat. Well, it has to be the 76ers, <laughs> Obviously. right? Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. All right. Last question. Uh, what are you looking forward to most at the AOSSM meeting this year? I am just. You will be there. Works uh, yes, we're both going to be there. <laughs> and it'll be great. And I, I'm just so, I am so looking forward to just everyone being together. Um, we have been so like painfully geographically distanced, yeah. right, for a year plus, and um, it's going to be great to be together and you know just kind of do the things, not just the educational things, but all the camaraderie. Um, I think it's really going to be great, and and that that sense, like both of you saying you're going to be there, there's a huge amount of enthusiasm, and the fact that we're doing with Anna, I mean, there's great logic to do it in this time we're living in to do it together, and the camaraderie and the collaboration, so that makes it even cooler. So, so just all being together, yeah, totally awesome. agree. Great. Yeah, I'm glad you're both going to be there. Yes, we're yeah. really looking forward to it. We're really forward to it. Thank and thank you so much again for joining us tonight. Um, this is great. It was really, it was really a pleasure. And we'll pleasure let you know when it's you. posted. All right. Well, thank Great. you so much again, Dr. Sagadi. Okay. This was wonderful yeah. to catch up. Yeah. Hopefully thank we chat before AOSSM, but if not, yeah. we'll both see you there. Yeah. yeah. And, and please, you know, well, actually, I know I'll see you at, you know, at our reunion, but um, Catherine, you know, I'm I'll doing see, the uh, emerging leaders thing. Excellent. So hopefully okay. I see you there. Yeah, great. I will definitely be there. Yeah, you know, there'll be all kinds of things, but I'll look, I'll look very forward to seeing you both. So thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your night. Yeah, yeah, you too. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to episode eight of the Sports Talks podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportstalkspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportstalkspod.com.